0: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 256, The Boy King. May I take a moment to self-advertise again, this time to ask you to sign up for membership for the History of England. To do so, gives you immediate access to a library of now around 70 podcast episodes across all kinds of subjects. There's the History of Scotland, which had reached the time of Wallace and the Bruce. Or there are biographies or topics. The most popular recently has been a look at the basis of religious intolerance and how toleration came to Europe. There's a new series on Britain and the sea and you can sing along to the odd shanty while you do it. You might sign up because all of this sounds great or it might sound as dull as ditchwater. but you might feel here is a chance to support the history of England, a way of donating, as it were, or indeed both. Just go to the website at thehistoryofengland.co.uk and hit become a member. It's a doddle. So, gentle listeners, to misquote the levelers, there is one way, and that's your own, except when it comes to the reign of Edward VI, where that is simply not right. In the reign of the boy king, there is only one way for any respectable historian to start, indeed for any shed-bound teller of the historical English story to start, and that is to bemoan. It is to bemoan that Edward VI is in many ways similar to Coronation Chicken, or BLT, or Prawn and Mayonnaise. Which is to say, his reign is sandwiched. Sandwiched between the far better known and talked about reigns of Henry Eighth and Mary, bloody or otherwise, and therefore, he is ignored. Walk into the crowded pubs on a Friday night, ladies and gentlemen, and listen to the conversation, and you will find the name of Edward VI entirely absent as the beer flows and the prawn and mayonnaise is gulped. The weakness in the statement is, of course that it's a racing certainty you won't hear Mary or Henry mentioned either, but, you know, there's slightly more chance of that happening. One of the problems, of course, is that, generally speaking, Edward was rubbish at burning people, managing just one in his six years, which is a sad failing in an early and mid-Tudor monarch. Nor is there any sex, another terminal failing, and, of course, the figure of the king himself is almost if not entirely invisible because he was just a kid of nine years old when Dad dies. In fact, of course, these six years are not only critical to the history of Blighty, they're also a lot of fun. In fact, they have everything except, it's probably true to say, sex. So clearly that's going on somewhere. But we have a superhuman effort at niceness. Short lived, it must be said. We have political intrigue. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Political intrigue as tough as if it was going out of fashion, which, incidentally, it wasn't. I mean, really wasn't. Politics and fashion were always the passion at the English court. It has religion. It's here, right here, right now, that the basis of English Protestantism is laid. That is, irrespective of whether or not you think the process was irreversible, a debate we will have when Edward's big sister has her go. Under Edward VI, Thomas Cranmer, the great survivor, has his day, is unchained, unleashed, and like a great big bloodhound, all salivating enthusiasm and energy, with more than a hint of danger, is let loose to lick the face of England with a big, wet Protestant tongue. And at Edward's early death, we have a personal tragedy and one of the greatest, most melodramatic images that only the 19th century could produce with Paul de la Roche's pick of the execution of Lady Jane Grey, the Nine Days Queen. It is a reign where the English happily handed modern Scottish nationalists a large, nail-filled club with which to beat the Union in Somerset's energetic and brutal pursuit of a marriage between Mary, Queen of Scots, and Edward, the rough wooing. And wound through all of this, the glorious history of English popular protest continues with the Prayer Book Rebellion and John Kett's Rebellion and the Commotion Time, where the thin red strand of fury at a world dominated by the rich and famous remains, broken yet persistent, since John Ball declaimed, When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? It's been hard shoehorning that quote in again, and yet I have succeeded. Go me. And then you have all the political infighting you have come to know and love in England's rich historical pageant, particularly the figures of the Duke of Somerset and the Duke of Northumberland. Now, before I continue, who are these people? Who are Somerset and Northumberland? Where have these two suddenly sprung from? What we have here is that enormously irritating habit of English politicians and nobility to change their names. Somerset is, in fact, Edward Seymour, brother to Jane Seymour, Queen, and is therefore uncle to Edward VI. Seymour has been Viscount Beecham, then Earl of Hertford, and has finally arrived only now in his ultimate harbour in 1547, courtesy of a very nice piece of post-rationalising thievery that we'll talk about in the next episode. The Duke of Northumberland is not a Percy, as you might expect. This is in fact John Dudley, son of that Dudley executed for his role under Henry VII and you've met him before as Viscount Lyle, Admiral as the French attacked in 1545. He will become actually the Earl of Warwick in the same handout that will make Seymour the Duke of Somerset until 1551 when he'll make it to the top of the tree of the peerage as Duke of Northumberland. It's annoying. I'm sorry, I didn't make the rules. So, it has become traditional when, in what is essentially still a python worshipping country, when two or three of us are gathered together to perform the parrot sketch, or alternatively, to have an opening episode talking about the historiography of the reign ahead. And this shall be no different, although it shall have something of a different flavour, given that the king is just a beardless youth. We should start, of course, with our touchstone of truth, light, justice and small fairy animals, except for rats, of course, 1066 and all that. Very tellingly, Messrs Seller and Yatesman don't have a chapter on Edward VI on his own. He is conflated with Broody Mary, which is in itself a comment on the forgotten reign of the boy king. Here we go. Edward VI was only a boy and therefore was not allowed to have his reign properly, but while he was sitting on the throne, everyone in the land was forced to become Protestant so that Broody Mary would be able to put them to death afterwards for not being a Roman Catholic. Well, there you go. Seems reasonably accurate. The Ladybird Kings and Queens of England, 1968, has a very dramatic picture of the Earl of Warwick going for his sword, while Somerset yells at him and Edward VI looks on, well, sort of calmly, really. It then talks about the prayer book and the monasteries, including the immortal line, The monks grew fat and lazy. I do not have the remake of The Kings and Queens, and therefore the most recent edition, but I would bet my shorts it says nothing of the sort, and is suitably right on. Now, as it happens, given that Edward was nubbed knee-height to a grasshopper, most of the controversies are therefore not about the beardless one himself. Although one of them is, which is how much influence Edward had on the secular and religious politics of his reign. There can have been few reigns in English or indeed world history that have been so eagerly awaited and heralded. Actually, although we usually depict Henry VIII as a vicious piggy-eyed tyrant with a wobbly chin by the time he died, you don't get quite the same exhalation of relief that's so evident when Henry VII died and Henry VIII first came to the throne. But then, maybe by then, the secular nobility were thoroughly wary of any celebration of new kings, once bitten, twice shy sort of thing, or, you know, tens of times bitten, finally shy sort of thing. It was Cranmer who set the tone at Edward's coronation by exhorting him to be a new Josiah, the biblical king, son of David. Why Josiah? Because he and his evangelical colleagues hoped that Edward would imitate the biblical king who torn down the idols and restored the true scripture to his people. The immediate tradition after Edward's death then was of a young king of great godliness. It was also of a life of great promise cut tragically short. Contemporaries noted the young king's intelligence, and this reputation at the age of 15 had spread throughout the courts of Europe. It was helped by reports such as that of Italian Girolamo Cardano, who wrote that Edward had uttered his mind no less readily and eloquently than I could myself. This was in a discussion incidentally held in Latin, on the movements of the stars and planets, most would agree, whatever his impact on affairs, that Edward was one of the best-dedicated monarchs. So, anyway, this image was continued into the 17th century, the image of a godly and active king, that is. Richard Hooker, probably the most influential and important English theologian of the Elizabethan Church, wrote that Edward died young, but lived long, for life is an action. Which is a nice quote for any times, actually, when you think about it. Sadly, this nice positive view was not to last. The historian Dale Hoke identified the beginning of the rot as John Hayward's The Life and Reign of Edward VI, written in 1630. It focused instead on the two major political figures of Edward's reign, Somerset and Northumberland. Hayward presented Edward as the prisoner of his duplicitous counsellors and his reformation as born of factiousness and greed. In this, they had contemporary support from Cranmer and his evangelicals, who were wild, livid with fury at the misuse of the dividend of the Reformation as the excessive wealth of the church was clawed back for the nation. This theme, a king at the mercy of his ministers, then carried on into the 17th and 18th century and into the 19th century as well. The story at that point changes a little bit, but not really in terms of Edward's impact on affairs, he remained presented largely as a pawn, but now Edward had lost his godliness as well, even an impotent godliness. The 20th century historian W.K. Jordan saw Edward as interested in religion only so far as it affected his position as supreme head of the church. Now, G.R. Elton shared the view of Edward as a cipher, a nobody, and he was a man of strong opinions as our Jeff. Listen to this. Edward played no part in his reign, The king was a cold-hearted prig, a fact which even the pathos of his miserable death cannot make forget. Self-righteous, inclined to cruelty and easily swayed by cunning men, he exercised such little influence as he possessed in favour of disastrous policies and disastrous politicians. Ouch! Now that view does continue into this day. Dale Hoke himself described Edward as an articulate puppet. But in this... Ourdale is probably now out of step. The picture is emerging of a young king gradually coming into his own, growing into his role of genuine and reforming piety, a promising and even exceptional youth who began to assert himself in the areas about which he felt most convinced, namely religion. Thomas Cooper, the continuator of a chronicle published around 1560, noted that by 1552, many talked that the young king was now to be feared, it is a picture that is in some ways tied up with your view of the Duke of Northumberland, whether the Northumberland simply exercised a great influence over Edward or controlled his every move. But in 2007, Edward's most recent biographer Chris Gidmore could write boldly and confidently that no one would now describe Edward as a nobody. Dermot McCulloch established a view of Edward not as the essentially secular king that Jordan would have had it, but as a young man, Passionately and actively interested in religion. And he makes the point that it is impossible, even slightly odd, to separate religion from the idea of royal supremacy in Tudor times. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. He notes that Edward was very keen on sermons, so that sermons began to be heard weekly from the Royal Privy Garden pulpit, that he would take notes in a book, which is now lost, and so on. Edward's own personal passion was instrumental in driving forward religious reform, essentially. In all of this, by the way, we're held by the fact that Edward is pretty exceptional in the history of English monarchs in keeping a personal diary. Whoa, wild, now that must be exciting for any historian... Imagine if his dad had kept one, for example. You can imagine it. Anne tore a strip off me again in front of everyone today. She's a real pain in the neck. Can't imagine what I ever saw in her. Told Tom to make the pain in her neck permanent. There's a sort of caption competition there somewhere, I should think, making up diary entries for political leaders over the centuries. So, I imagine the trembling hands with which historians opened said diary. Sadly, I have it on good authority, though I've not read it myself, that it's really, really dull. What a letdown. Oh. Anyway, the super summary is that the view of Edward by the end of the reign is of a young man whose views could certainly no longer be ignored, and in the matter of religion at least, were very well formed. No counsellor, even one as powerful as Northumberland, could afford to ignore them by the end of the reign. Which brings us neatly, almost as though planned, to the other of the controversies of the reign, which you will not be surprised to learn is about. Oh, let me think now. Religion. Hey, who'd have thought it? The how Protestant was my valley debate really hots up now and will culminate in Mary's reign. The traditional view was that the Edwardian changes were all thoroughly popular, well received, and there were few Catholics left. And in the words of A.G. Dickens, the forest of Protestantism was sweeping relentlessly across the landscape of the nation. Christopher Hay was then another Catholic historian in a long line who claimed that in fact Catholicism remained very strong and that Protestantism was driven as much from above as it did grow up from below. The old religion has substantially retained its popularity, showed by the rapid restoration of Catholicism in 1553. Let's not cover too early the debate about the Marian Restoration, but most commentators would probably now say something on the lines that it's impossible to know, but there were probably more than half of the population by the end of the reign that still hankered. Nothing wrong with a bit of hankering, hankered after traditional forms of worship. The debate now is probably more about the flavour of the changes. Catholic historians had built up quite a head of steam in presenting the Edwardian Reformation as an entirely negative matter of destruction. The stripping of the altars, the nasty lot. In much the same way as people speak angrily of the Puritans in the Civil War, often pinning everything on Cromwell, a particular bugbear of mine, and when I am particularly given to muttering mournfully into the recesses of the Shed. It had become popular to present this as mainly just secular greed. And a blanket condemnation slipped easily from the pages of most histories, actually, or many. And, of course, it is easy these days. The removal and destruction of all the art and decoration is very unattractive to us in the modern day. It's taken historians like McCulloch and Margaret Aston to bring us back to our senses and remember to view history in context. The decoration and art is all very well But to the reformers of the day, they were addressing the much more important matter of saving the immortal souls of the people of England, you know. That for many, this was a time of excitement and liberation, as well as being a time of anxiety and loss for others. I cannot help but tell a personal story. The the period when religion meant most to me was when I was taking part in the simplest of ceremonies in the barest of environments north of the border. Not a dash of colour to be seen. And I think we just need to be a bit careful of the constant and casual assumption that decoration art equals good, whitewash equals bad. Just for the record, so that you know my own personal bias against which I struggle. We have been reminded, therefore, of the verbal imagery of the reign. The image of the new desire would be particularly strong and persistent, the stripping away of the accretions of the centuries, the reaction against what reformers saw as idolatry. But the image expanded at the time includes the explicit message that Josiah also restored and built. He restored true scripture to his people. It was a process in their minds of renewal, not just destruction. Alongside the image of Josiah was also one of the new Solomon, the leader who, having torn down, would then build the new temple. In 1627, Christopher Lever was aiming his darts at the bullseye of Charles I when he wrote of the building of the new temple of English religion, God would not King Henry to affect it, because he had been in blood and war, as was David, Solomon's father, but he reserves it for Edward. The point I'm making is that to contemporary reformers and many people of England, Edward's reign was about renewal, not destruction. To many others, of course, it was absolutely about destruction of an old friend that they loved. How deep support went for both, how deeply the Reformation has been embedded by Edward's tragic early death – remains reasonably controversial, but much less than it had been. It's now really only a question of degree. Everyone accepts that support for traditional religion remained very strong and probably more than half the population. The religious controversy then spreads across into the next stage, into the now venerable and proud tradition of the protest of the ordinary folk of the realm. The Western Rebellion has long been recognised to have been essentially about religion. The name it's given usually manages to give that away. The Prayer Book Rebellion. Hmm, I wonder what that was about. But Kett's Rebellion in East Anglia and the more general camping time is a more different matter, where religious motives or words associated with Catholicism seem to have been absent, and in so much as religion played any part, the language was of the reformed religion. David Lodes summarised a view of the rebellion with the line, Kett's rebellion was an economic rebellion encouraged by ideas of Commonwealth. This is a view hotly debated by those convinced that it's just not possible for public protest to be anything other than pro-Catholic at this time. Eamon Duffy seized with some relief on a religious banner carried by one of the villagers. Richard Rex took the view that Kett was simply clever enough to get everyone to avoid annoying the Protestant leaders at the time. A cannier rebellion, as he put it and noted that East Anglia would be supportive of a return to the traditional under Mary. Probably fair to say that on this debate, it's always going to be a split verdict, although I shall be honoured when the time comes to tell you my view. Plus, there will be a shed cast specifically on Ket and his rebellion ahead of time, so probably 30th of December, a couple of weeks to three weeks. The other and last major debate is about the characters of the two names that dominate Edward's reign, Somerset... The protector, who initially seized power, and the Duke of Northumberland, who would take control away from him. The two are clearly and fascinatingly very different. The traditional view was of Somerset as the good Duke, a tradition deeply embedded by that architect of the English story, John Fox. Because Somerset is a thoroughly intriguing character, with a most unusual sniff of the modern in appearing to have a sympathy with the poor and their condition and their complaints. I found the representations of Somerset actually to be the most confused. So was he hated by the people for his very traditional and elitist love of finery and display, including mowing down a bunch of tenements in London to build himself a big palace, Somerset House? Or was he in fact deeply loved for his sympathy for the poor, for which purpose he was sent on missions by the council even after he'd fallen from power? Was he interested in addressing the grievances of the 1549 rebellions or was he simply weak and indecisive? For Fox... It was all about Somerset, the devout champion of Protestantism. But it was not just Fox who created this positive image. It was also the Bishop of Rochester and Winchester under Edward, a man called John Ponnet, who had become one of the 800 Marian exiles, those Protestants who fled Mary's Catholic fires for the safety of the continent. Ponnet was actually a man of very interesting views. In his A Short Treatise of Political Power, he argued fiercely against the idea of kings as God's representative. Instead, kings simply had a job to do. The Short Treatise was therefore a rather forceful statement of the lawfulness of armed resistance. Basically, he built on the radical Protestant and Calvinist standpoint that rulers were called by God to discharge a particular office. And if they didn't do their job, which was to do good, it was then every person's right to get rid of him and find one that would. Ponnet mined the Bible, civil and canon law, previous church writers such as John of Salisbury and Thomas Aquinas, and he argued that a tyrannical ruler should be treated as a normal criminal and punished accordingly. Interesting. Huh. His views form part of the tradition that will inspire Locke, But at the time he was writing, Ponnet was in exile, and hey, maybe he was thinking more about Mary and her hub, Philip, King of Spain. Because he focused particularly on a leader that goes about to betray and make his country over to foreigners, which was, of course, what he thought Mary was doing at the time with the Spanish. Ponnet therefore built on that image of a good duke, Protestant, supporter of the poor, and the good Duke image survived into the 20th century, though it was an image a little tiny bit battered with the odd bruise here and there, inflicted by some of the more negative observers, such as a historian called John Hayward in the early 17th century, who had a hack at Somerset for political incompetence, which is a good shout, actually, whenever you think of his principles. And actually, Somerset's contemporary William Paget was very alarmed by the man's populism, and nobody likes a populist, right? There's a world of difference, though, between a populist politician and a populist, of course. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my slightly feeble attempt at insightful political comment. Then in the hands of A.F. Pollard in the early 20th century, Somerset's reputation hits the heights. A man of principle, Somerset chose the path of principle over expediency, wrote Pollard, and wrote of a man who was a sort of 16th century liberal constitutionalist. Pollard could not deny Somerset's personal love and accumulation of riches, but despite that he saw a good duke entirely in control and therefore pushing the boy king back into the shadows and a friend and defender of the poor. W.K. Jordan mainly continued his tradition into the later 20th century, though the emphasis was beginning to change, emphasising that whatever you thought of his principle, Somerset had rather crashed and burned as a politician. Though Jordan also managed to present Somerset as a sort of non-religious, as a moderate an essentially non-sectarian faith that was contribute greatly to the centrist tradition in the development of Anglicanism. It is true to say that under Somerset, no Catholic was burned for their faith, which is an achievement of a kind within the European tradition, as you will know if you'd suffered the violence of my last three European episodes. But non-sectarian is way too far. But then in 1975, Professor Bush rode into town and gave the comfortable image a thorough goosing which had the good Duke idea, squealing all the way back to the Rose Gallery of History, clutching both buttocks lightly but firmly. Interestingly, Bush saw Somerset primarily as a soldier whose whole policy was geared to the war with Scotland, and whose attitudes were entirely conventional, and whose pursuit of a failing military policy led then to political failure. Geoffrey Elton gleefully placed his boot onto the good Duke's fleeing backside as well, Somerset's mind was never out of step with those of his colleagues in government, though he had an unfailing knack of alienating people. The image of the good duke had been dispatched. John Lotherington emphasised Somerset's reputation not for being a constitutionist, but rather an autocrat, when he concluded that Somerset neglected the Privy Council and used it as no more than a rubber stamp for his policies. Richard Rex dismisses Somerset with contempt as a self-serving a revist who feathered his nest at the expense of king and church. And the job is done. Good duke no longer. We have had the establishment of a reputation. We have had revisions of the revisionists. But, gentle listeners, there is a small voice for the good duke that remains. Let them call them the counter-revisionists. And the leading counter-revisionist is Dearmid McCulloch, from whose biography of Thomas Cranber I have borrowed liberally, as well as his book, Tudor Church Militant. McCulloch makes the point that you cannot just talk away Somerset's attitude to the rebels in 1549. Richard Rex would have us dismiss both Somerset and Northumberland as essentially the same thing, just venal politicians. I find this attitude to politicians enriching themselves very odd. That's what medieval and early modern politicians do, isn't it? If you take the reins of power, you expect to be fabulously rich and display your wealth to the world and build a clientage and patronage network to make your rule effective and secure. This is a truth that extends to all of Europe. McCulloch makes the point that hated or loathe it. Somerset did demonstrate a sympathy with the East Anglian rebellions and rebels, and so there is a debate still Team Somerset or Team Northumberland. And it has tended to be like that, actually, a sort of binary. Somerset or Northumberland, which one are you for? Because, of course, Northumberland became Somerset's political opponent, and so it was that the enemy of the good duke must needs be the bad duke. Northumberland blotted his own doorstep in an even more serious way at the time, though. At the very end, he declared that he had converted to Catholicism. In terms of establishing a good reputation when your history will be written by the likes of John Fox, this was as disastrous as being a Protestant when your history was written by a Jesuit or by a Pope. So, Dudley became a tyrant who falsified charges against Somerset, a villain, nothing more than a ruthless and ambitious politician whose final betrayal demonstrated his lack of principle. W.R.D. Jones wrote that, Northumberland employed a feigned ardour for the religious reformations purely as a means of holding the king's favour. Plus, people pointed out that Northumberland frittered away the last round of the dividend of church wealth to the very vocal fury of evangelicals at the time, it must be said. But as things go around, they, of course, come around. And like a seesaw, as the lead of historical criticism has been plonked on the Somerset lap and his side of the seesaw has fallen, so Northumberland's reputation has risen majestically skywards. It's been noted that Northumberland was a much more able politician than Somerset, much more consensual. Yes, the evangelicals were right. Northumberland did indeed not spend the church dividend on things they would have liked, education, the poor and so on. But then Northumberland faced an intensely disastrous financial situation after Henry VIII's expensive foreign policy and indeed the good duke's equally expensive one. And hey, at least Northumberland did his level best to put things right in other ways. Doing a deal on Boulogne, ending the Scottish Wars for example. He demonstrated a far better understanding of doing what was required for the good of the kingdom despite the opprobrium that was heaped on his head as a result. The argument that foreign wars and the pursuit of military glory were a bad thing belonged to the lunatic fringe as far as 16th century attitudes were concerned, They were not the mainstream. But Northumberland, he realised that English finances just could not stretch any further. And so, the bad duke has been recognised as a competent administrator, a genuine reformer capable of taking unpopular decisions, who ruled genuinely by consent in his council. The debate about his last-minute conversion remains, however, Was he an unprincipled man who hid his real feelings so as to gain political success? Or did he just have a last-minute panic or a last-minute bid to save his skin? To be continued. Please then, folks, kindly give some thought and consideration to membership of the History of England and visit the website thehistoryofengland.co.uk. I shall return next week when we'll launch The New Reign and cover the story of Somerset's brother Thomas Seymour and the end of Catherine Parr, who rather memorably writes of the good duke, It was fortunate we were so much distant, for I suppose else I should have bitten him. You've got to love Catherine Parr. Thank you all very much for your continued support and patience. This week, a special thank you for those of you who have given reviews on Facebook. It seems really churlish of me not to like each one, but it feels a bit immodest too, so I don't. But rest assured, I read and weep over each and every one, and I really appreciate the nice comments. Good luck then, everyone, and have a great week.